It's May 1982! Finally. 26 months till the Tremel takeover. In this episode, we marvel at the podcast actually returning. If you're listening to the back catalog, there was a bit of a break between episode 20 and episode 21. Enough time has passed that the pain of editing in Audacity has faded, and my new much slimmed down post-production process will prevent burnout and more hiatuses. Hiatus? Hiatus I? One of those. Anyway, in this episode, we talk about what I've been doing in the time off, some Kansas Fest stuff, magazine coverage, and we're going to talk about a game that I wrote for Kansas Fest that won the Hackfest. This is the Player Missile Podcast. I'm Rob McMullen, and we're ready for episode 21. Surprise? Returning from hiatus. Sometimes I think it might have been a surprise to me too, but I always had, had the intention of coming back. Whenever I would see one of these old magazines, I just want to pick it up and read it. But then I would think about the editing process and just the pain of that. So that kind of kept me away for a little bit longer than maybe it could have. You know, if I were able to hire somebody to do the editing, I never would have taken a hiatus. But I have a new podcast production scheme going on now. So a couple things are different. I've got a all solid state laptop now, so there's no fan noise, no nothing that I have to take out. And that was one of the things that was always bothering me about my old production was that I just found this is like a persistent background hum that I really didn't like. And I guess it was just the fans on the computer, even though they didn't sound loud to me when I was there. But now there's nothing quiet. I'm recording in my in my kid's bedroom where all the stuffed animals and scattered clothes should absorb all extra sounds. I am going to do my best to not be a perfectionist about this. I know what you're thinking. Is, is What? A perfectionist? Well, when you have to listen to yourself talk for however many hours then edit it down, you tend to notice a lot of things about your speaking that you don't really like, or at least that happened to me. So what I'm going to do now is not be quite so... I don't know a better way to put this. Quite so anal about it, taking all the coughs and throat sounds and all that stuff out. But I've also got a new technique in Audacity that I think is going to help. And it also helps that it's so much, so much more quiet here. I'm just looking at the audio recordings as I'm, as I'm sitting here, and it's like a practically a flat line when I'm not speaking. So I'm hoping all this stuff will make it easier to produce, which is really the big problem. I'm excited to get back to the magazines again. Not as excited to get back into the game reviewing because that always takes a lot of time just to delve into the technical details. But I think the technical details are what makes this podcast different from others. And I, honestly, I really like that. So for this episode, I've got a bit of a cop-out, and I'm going to talk about one of my own games, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So you might be asking yourself, Self, what has Rob been doing all this time? Well, I'll tell you. I've been working on Omnivore quite a bit. That's my cross-platform reverse engineering tool for 8-bit computers. It used to be just for Ataris, but I added stuff for Apple, and I can read Apple DOS file systems now. I know the Apple binary format and stuff, so there's some special stuff for Apple's and if I had infinite time, I would add stuff for C64 or Coco or something. But since I don't really use either of those, that's not going to happen by me. But I'm hoping that the source code is getting cleaned up enough so that people might be able to add new things if they should want to. So yeah, another thing that I've been doing is cleaning up the source and trying to make it easy, more easily understandable anyway. Because it was a pretty convoluted, I don't want to say mess, but it was hard to follow. Kevin and I from the Antic Podcast have been a little bit about Jumpman, but we have not 
made as many levels as we'd hoped to, nor have we had the submissions that we'd hoped to either. So let me remind you, we do have a Jumpman contest. We're trying to design Jumpman 2 with 32 new levels. So I encourage you to use Omnivore. It's got a really easy-to-use graphical editor. You just drag and drop stuff. You can put ladders, girders, bombs, whatever, in place. Save it out. Test it right there. It's pretty easy. You know you want to do it, right? As I'm recording this now, it's, what, September? Boy, has it really been that long? I, I keep thinking I just went to Kansas Fest, but I didn't. It was in July, so it's been several months. So the Kansas Fest actually was a big focus of mine. I wanted to do something for the Hackfest this year. Kevin won the Hackfest last year with his game. He wrote an assembly language game, his first assembly language program, and everybody was well impressed. So that sounded like a good thing for me to try. I would, I wanted to do something that maybe hadn't been done before. So I started looking into Apple high-res graphics, and I started thinking about it and prototyping a high-res game with the idea that I could code up all the 652 stuff at Kansas Fest itself, because you only got like four days for the Hackfest. But the only problem being is I know nothing about Apple high-res graphics. So that's what I did for most of the early part of the year. On any free time I had, I was trying to learn Apple high-res. I used the Assembly Lines book from Chris Torrance's edited down the columns from Roger Wagner's columns in uh, Soft Talk. There's actually two groups on Facebook about Apple game design, and there was a strangely titled book that uh, Quinn always mentions on Open Apple that is like Apple Arcade Games and Apple Arcade Graphics and Game Design, something like that. And that had some example routines, so that was all helpful. But it really took me a while, and then I had to figure out the concept for a game. So I was prototyping a bunch of stuff in Python, and finally got on the idea of Amidar, which is a game that I really liked. I discovered through Ten Pence Arcade, one of their pod, uh, one of their contests, and it's so it's pretty simple. It's just a maze game, you know, no, not much moving stuff, and the logic is really easy because it's all deterministic. So I did a lot of prototyping work in Python. I wrote out a bunch of stuff on paper, and when I got to Kansas Fest, I was coding like crazy. It was, uh, yeah, not something I'm going to do again. I don't think because I just it was a lot of pressures, like cramming for a final exam, and I didn't get a lot of chance to hang out with other people, although to some extent I still feel like an outsider there, you know, as an Atari user, and you know, I'm quite introverted as well, so that doesn't help anything. And I guess that's maybe part of my problem. Let me tell you a little story about how my brain works. Ever since I was a little kid, I always thought if I were good at something, then people would like me. And that's something I've carried throughout my life, which is dumb. But as an extremely introverted person, it's hard to, you know, make the first approach to talk to people. Um... And even in conversations, it's like if I'm in conversation with, with more than about, f- like, four people, I'm fine. Five people, it starts to get, I'm starting to get a little bit weird. It's just strange, you know, brains are weird. So Kansas Fest, 100 people, I am willing to bet that I'm probably the most introverted inter- person there. Which is weird, because to some extent, all of us at Kansas Fest were, like, outsiders, you know, we're people who like cool stuff, and, you know, now it's called, you know, being a geek about something, but back then in the 80s and whatever, it was not a label you wanted to have, you know, people who were just really fans about something, and we really got into computers. Anyway, the, so the point of me doing this high-res game at Kansas Fest was to, I guess, be accepted as part of the tribe, you know, to get people to say, oh, he, maybe he does know something about apples, you know, maybe he's worthy of being a member. I don't know, I'm just telling you how my brain works. So I sat down and uh, coded my brains out, went to a lot of the presentations as well, but I had my laptop in there. And a lot of people do this. They'll have their laptop and they'll code something while a presentation's going. You know, the lulls or down spots or whatever. 
there were a bunch of great presentations, though. I think my favorite was an Apple II emulator that could stop time and rewind and go back and start it over again from a previous point, which is extremely cool. I've actually I've got, a, I've got a prototype version of that for the Atari 800 emulator, but the code is still pretty rough, shall we say. But it works. You can go back and you can start over again. I think that's going to be great for debugging. I'm really looking forward to that. But that's yet another project that I don't have enough time to do. So anyway, four days of coding, a lot of like panicky moments as I was trying to debug stuff on the Apple II emulator, which I had a hard time with. Boy, that emulator is not easy to use for me. I guess I'm just used to Altera and Atari 800 and their, their debuggers. I had a hard time with Apple Win, so I'm kind of glad I'm not writing any more Apple II software. At any rate, then, you know, the times I wasn't coding, of course, I was hanging out with all the other vegetarians, and we went to a vegetarian restaurant, went to the, what's it called, the Updown, I think? It's an arcade there. So I wasn't a total hermit, but I definitely spent a lot of time coding. And it came down Saturday morning, and they judged, and there was a bunch of entries this year, a bunch of really impressive ones. Alain Chetta. I'm probably mispronouncing that, sorry, Alain. Hacked Sargon 2, so he which is a chess program, and so he hacked it so it would play another Sargon 2, so he had two apples sitting next to each other, talking to each other, playing a game of chess. That was extremely cool. Kevin Savitz had a Simon game. Russ Ross did an implementation of the 2048 game. And as I was coding my project, I saw Jeremy Rand, who's a multiple winner, working on a high-res game as well, and I was like, oh, shoot, I am not going to be the first, and he's probably going to beat me because he's such a great programmer. So it came down to the judging, and... As it turns out, I did actually win. So I was, yeah, pretty pleased and relieved. It's not as if all the work would have been for nothing. I've had it not won, but, you know, here it is. I got my goal. You know, here I'll be recognized among the Apple II community. And then the next day, as everybody was leaving, we were all sitting in the great room, and somebody said, and I was sitting, you know, within view, and said, oh, yeah, somebody wrote an Amadar clone. And I'm like, what the f***? What the f***? Holy f***. What the f*** do I have to do? I guess this proves the fallacy of wanting people to like you for stuff that you do. Maybe that'll be a lesson to me. <laughs> but, you know, with my introversion, it's hard to meet people, so I always think that would be an icebreaker or something, but, yeah, I don't know. That's Yeah, so that's my mistake. But regardless of the recognition, I mean, did I really code it for the recognition? I don't know. It would have been nice to be recognized a little bit more, but what can you do? And I'm a terrible self-promoter anyway, so... You have dreams about being raised up on everybody's shoulders, you know, and confetti flying everywhere, and just, ah, cheering. And the reality of the situation is what I won, and went up to accept the award, and I was, like, so nervous getting up in front of everybody. It's like, I don't know. So, well, anyway, next to Kansas Fest, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to spend time trying to get to know people, maybe, and maybe that'll be a different result. I say that now. I'm sure my introversion will kick in. So that's perhaps more you want than you wanted to know. I will talk more about the technical details of the game and the... Um, in the game section this episode. So I hope you stick around for that. And speaking of you... What have you been doing all this time? I didn't get a whole lot of feedback in the almost year that I've been on hiatus here. I got a lot of support from friends of the show, Siegfried and Justin, and Richard Broadhurst, whom I'll talk about in a little bit. Other first-time people like Greg and Gray, and everybody who was excited about my return when I got on Twitter and announced it. Yeah, thanks. I guess, you know, I don't do this for the volume of people that listen, because it's, you know, if you extrapolate, I don't know, from the downloads, there's, you know, several hundred downloads of each episode, but I think, as Rob O'Hara said in his podcast about podcasting all those years ago, do the podcast you want to listen to, and so, yeah, this is still the one I would want to listen to, and I don't take the lack of feedback as, you know, lack of interest on the part of other people. I think probably people saw the hiatus and figured I was done, and 
yeah, it'll be in- interesting to see how many downloads I get starting in this episode. If people have already deleted me from their podcast catchers and moved on, or if they'll come back. Greg just did send a note. This is Greg Lovecamp. He sent me a note saying that uh, he disagreed with my assessment that piracy killed Atari. And his point was that management killed Atari. And yeah, I don't disagree. I think there were a lot of management mistakes. And you hear the sheer volume of money that they went through. Just stories of people, if they needed some part, they could just requisition it and show up, you know? And So yeah, I'm sure poor management had a lot to do with it. But you know, as we get into the 83-84 time frame, the systems had been out long enough, and the sorry, I think that might have been the peak of the games here, at least here in the U.S., and then they kind of started dwindling as the C64 comes in and takes over. And I'm sure the the small installed base plus the rampant pirating probably had something to do with it. But yes, I will accept your premise, Greg, that the management did more than piracy to kill Atari. I mean, Greg said that one of the things he enjoyed about the podcast was the magazine reviews, because it sort of led him to, as he said, recall the exciting moments when they arrived in the mail. And some more feedback from Glenn, who said the similar thing, that it, it reminded him uh, fondly of those days. And uh, he said, I can't wait for my next show, and here's, he just, he's the most recent feedback I've received. It was probably a month ago, maybe? So, so he's one of the few that didn't have to wait that long. Yeah, for you, those of you listening to the back catalog at some point in the future, yeah, there's about a year break in between episodes 20 and 21, in case you hadn't noticed by all my uh, description slash ranting earlier. Now I'm going to talk about Richard Broadhurst here in the listener-written program section. He discovered the podcast through 10 Pence Arcade, because I'm kind of podcasting buddies with those guys, and um, they've mentioned me on the on their show a number of times. And so uh, Richard said he got into it and, and was really enjoying the podcast, and then he sent me a link of all the stuff that he's done. He And he's done just a lot of amazing stuff on the BBC. So I'll put links in the show notes to some of his games. He did some arcade conversions where he actually simulates the processor of a different architecture and runs it on the BBC. And it's really, really amazing stuff. I've never had an experience with an actual BBC yet. I've, I've played some of his games in the browser emulation, and I'd like to get an emulator set up here, but I don't know where to start. But yeah, it's in, add it to the list of projects in my infinite free time, I guess. So with the idea of making less work for myself, I'm going to cut out some stuff, probably, for the foreseeable future, like the main cabinet stuff and the little monthly history of the Tremel countdown, and uh, go right into the magazines from from here on. So the first one we'll talk about is Analog, still called Analog 400-800 magazine. This is the number six, two bucks twenty-five on the cover price, and there's a it's a yellow border, and then the, like, there's this red sort of circuit board with the sort of 3D image of a face kind of coming out of it. It's a very very red cover, lots of red, and uh, it says the features. This is a maniac typing trainer pirating. And memory upgrade. And speaking of memory upgrades, coincidentally, the inside cover is a ad for the Mosaic 32K RAM upgrade for $179.95. Full-color ad for Mouse Attack after that. And facing it is an ad for uh, Compute's books. There's Inside Atari DOS and the first book of Atari. I still think it's kind of funny that other magazines are advertising in analog, but uh, I guess that was kind of the practice in some. Analog, yeah, is my favorite magazine, so we're going to go through pretty much all of analog. So I'm not really going to summarize the table of contents because we'll pretty much hit it all, at least in summary. So um, in the editorial, Mike Deshane was saying that the it's issue number six, and it said he said a year's worth of analog in only 14 months, and so he said we're finally getting caught up, so we can get analog out on a regular basis. Nothing's got my attention really in the feedback, so we'll skip that. And there's an article Benioff at large, which 
written by Mark Benioff. He has a summary of the West Coast Computer Fair. He said, over 33 new Atari projects were announced. Some of the top names in the Apple land. Gabelli, Budge, Broderbund, Online, Cavalier, I don't know, Cavalier. We're announcing translations uh, like Raster Blaster, uh, Data Sops, Micro Painter, Rockland, li- licensed uh, Gorf and Wizard of War, Online Systems, said Makers of Jawbreaker, uh, some new games, Threshold, Crossfire, Guns of Neberon, and Frogger, just completed by John Harris, it says. Check out the John Harris interview on the Antic feed. Great interview. And Mike Deshane in the editorial said that they uh, that Lee Pappas and Tom Hudson had visited the West Coast Computer Fair as well. So I think they said he'd have a summary later written from their point of view. On the new products section, there's a text game called Abuse by Don't Ask Software. The same people did the SAM software automatic mouth. <laughs> Seems like it's a text program that insults you and has you do games around figuring out its vocabulary something. I don't know. I've never seen that one. Also a blurb about, it says, Creative and Computing and Thorn EMI sign a pack. Pact. It says, uh, Creative Computing will distribute under its label software for the Atari developed by Thorn EMI. And some of the games, it says, uh, Pool, Snooker, Billiards, Darts, Tilt, Dominoes, and Cribbage. And Thorn EMI, there's a great interview with uh, Patricia Mitchell. It's antic uh, interview number 302, who was in the game development section of Thorny MI, so she got to do a lot of stuff like review games that came in. And uh, yeah, it was a great interview, so definitely check that out. And coincidentally, the next page is Creative Computing Software, a whole full-page ad, and it goes over just those same games. Pool, Darts, Billiards, Snooker, and a few others. The page facing that is a review of Pool 1.5 from a different company. This is one that I, yeah, pirated, or had pirated. Uh, it's a high-res game, and it's, uh, you know, got the physics for all the the balls bouncing around and stuff. And Tom Hudson's reviews, and it says, in conclusion, Pool 1.5 is a program which is well worth buying. Plays as well as the real thing. And he says, the money you'll save on a pool table can be used for the purchase of a new disk drive. Lee Pappas has another review, actually reviews of uh, Pac-Man and Centipede, the new cartridges. But I think the general consensus is the 5200 versions are better, and so those, those were converted, I think, by Glenn the 5200 man, also available on, on the Antic interview feed, but obviously pirated for us. There's an assembly language game next called Maniac by Rick Messner. And it's sort of, the text description reads like it's something like um, Berserk or something, but there's no screenshot. And, and as you may recall, that's, it's got, holy, holy cow, how many, one, two, three, four, it's like 11 columns of really tiny font, 12 columns of basic data statements. So this is before they had like the, the hex characters. They would, they actually wrote out uh, decimal characters, so it's, I can't believe I haven't to type this in. I don't think there's any checksum either. How would you ever? I don't know. You'd never find a mistake. I guess I want you to buy the disc. So I haven't looked at this program. I don't know what it's like, so I will have to do that at some point. Not today. There's more reviews. Um, Gabelli Software's Match Racer. The Soft Porn Adventure by Online Systems, which has the famous ad that's... Uh, I think, yeah, I think it's Roberta Williams in the hot tub. Uh, ad for K-Razy Shootout, which is a Berserk-style clone, but... Uh, the reviewer here, who's as a gnome to disc of uh, the program doctor, uh, likes it quite a bit. Uh, likes it better than Berserk. I I did play this briefly, and it is a lot like Berserk. I'm not a huge Berserk fan, but it seems to be well-written. And there's also an interview um, of some of the K-Byte software people. Shoot, I can't remember who that is right now. I will update that in the show notes. But I guess when Kevin talked to him, I guess K-Byte uh, was bought out by CBS Software... I don't know. Anyway, I'll put the uh, link to uh, Kevin's interview in the show notes. 
The next article is about using a DLI for a star field, like a blinking star field effect. And it's got a little basic loader program and then some assembly language to show how that works. The DLI itself is like super small. It just stores whatever's in the X register in the playfield colored register 2 and then returns. There's a typing trainer program next to type in basic program, but no screenshots. Actually, I, I found, um, what was that, typo attack, that um, APX software. That, I play, that's actually pretty fun. I may have to go against my no edutainment clause and review that one sometime. A couple more, more basic utilities. To, there's a run basic automatically. There's an assembler code subroutine adder. And then there's a big, oh gosh, eight-page, a seven-page screen on pirating, sort of written in a um, like first-person style. And uh, I don't know, it's just a little over the top for me. I think, I don't know, it's, it seems to me, that it's, so it's telling a story about some guy who, who got um, you know, essentially busted by the feds, but I don't. It's, it seems to me it's almost like a planted story. I don't know, it just seems too fake for some reason. If anybody happens to know the history of that, that would be interesting to find out. There's a one-page article about speeding up basic little tips and tricks, like the, the big one, like putting four loops at the beginning of the program, because Atari Basic, when it searches for a line number, goes back to the beginning of the program and searches every single, through every single line. Another There's another utility program, a variable lister. At this point, issue six, there's still a VCS update, but it's like one column, one column, half a page, so it's, what, 150 words or something? And I don't remember this when I started reading it, so I think this must be coming to an end soon. Charles Bashand has a continuation of his non-tutorial, tutorial, where he talks about um, some binary file saving, and then there's a, he talks a little bit about the Atari macro assembler, which is much better than the assembler editor cartridge. There's a little half-page review of the uh, Intec 48K RAM board for the Atari 400. Most of the ones I saw had to do a little soldering or something. Yep, yeah, here it is. It must be soldered to the underside of the 400 motherboard. If you're not experienced, it may be a good idea to have your local computer repair center do it. There's a large software review of something called SM slash TED, which is the Assembler and Text Editor. Eastern House Software. Tony Messina reviewed this. And I have not heard of this one. I wonder if it's... I wonder how popular it ended up being. Next little review is Caverns of Mars by Shimon Oderkirk. The review of it, of course, Caverns of Mars itself is by Greg Christensen. The summary is a delightful game requiring a lot of skill to play the more advanced level. The review of Dodge Racer, which I remember on the BCS. That may be a game I have to review. I remember that being fun despite the minimal graphics. It's sort of a dot-eating maze game, except instead of like Pac-Man where you've got all these different quarters you can turn down. There's only four places in the maze that you can change lanes. I think you can only change one lane at a time, but then there's like this sort of concentric rectangle of lines on the screen, and then in the middle of each uh, side of the screen, there's a place where you can change to the an inner or outer track, and you get, you know, collect dots and stuff. There's another review, Nuke Sub slash Galaxy Defender. Again, review by Tony Messina, he's a busy reviewer. So it's like a double game disc, but it needs basic. But it's a commercial enterprise, I don't think Basic games lasted much longer. And there are screenshots here. It's funny that there there have been screenshots of most of the reviews, but not of the type-in program. Interestingly, here I'm reading on the Internet Archive, and this is the first time I've ever seen a tear. So the, the, when they scan the pages, there's a tear in the in the across both pages, and there's a big chunk missing. So that's the first time I've seen that. All the other scans have been pretty pretty good. Review of Crush, Crumble, and Chomp, which has a 47-page manual, which is probably why when I pirated it, I had no idea what I was doing. There's another review of, uh, this is a utility graphics composer. It says it's a software tool to help the programmer generate high-resolution or medium-resolution pictures using a joystick or pedals. 
There's a bunch of different you know, little commands. You can make rectangle squares, parallelograms, fill stuff, change paintbrushes. Dave and Sandy Small have a review of a game called House of Usher. In the intro it says, I've been putting off doing this review for quite some time because it's a difficult review to do. This game is not so hot, and yet it has many interesting features. It forces the reviewer to look back and ask if he or she is not being too critical. So again, this is an Atari Basic commercial game, and goes over there's some bugs in it that you can actually fix by editing the Basic, um, and that how you could appreciate this if you've never owned a computer before or never played Adventure previously, because it's pretty slow and has a lot of bugs. Review the game Protector, which I intended to talk about. I don't think I've talked about it yet, but I think Protector 2 I'll, we'll probably review. I think that's the better... Well, it's the later game. It's probably the better game. But this is a review written in third-person style, as if this person was actually the pilot of this um, Protector ship. And the last... Source, the reviewer, uh, Craig Patchett, slips back into his normal voice at the end and said, Protector, when I first started playing it, was the best game I'd seen for the Atari. It's still one of the better ones, and you'll be dazzled when you first see it. You probably won't be after you've played it for a while. With all it has going for it, Protector just doesn't have the certain something that makes you want to come back and play it over and over again. To be perfectly honest, it went from the front of my game collection to the back in less than three months. As I remember, it's pretty repetitive, but I will have to play it again. There's a hardware article. This is not one I remember analog doing a whole lot of, but it says a low-bucks memory upgrade. It says allow you to upgrade your 400 with 8K of RAM, or 800 with 8K, to 16K. So you just need 8 4116 dynamic RAM chips. No pictures to help you. Well, there's one that, there's one about a solder point, but there's a lot of a lot of words and not as many pictures as I would hope for, if I were to attempt this. There's a disk menu program, sort of a basic disk catalog lister. And then we're nearing the end. There's an ad for Race in Space by Charles Bashan, the um, antics or the analog software arm of analog. And I think this game might be published in one of the later analogs. I'm not, I don't remember exactly. And they list all the back issues you can get, issues one through four, and the back cover is an ad for a game from Adventure International called Rearguard, which looks like, I don't know, maybe a Defender-type clone? I have not seen it before. The next magazine to look at is Byte Magazine, from May 1982, volume seven, number five. And here we go. This is my very first magazine. I'm actually sitting down with a physical copy. I am super excited. On the cover, there's a picture of six computer systems that I have not seen before. And and in small print on the bottom, this is Japanese computers. Now, this being Byte, as I flip through it, it's 548 pages. And um, as I've mentioned before, I'm getting a little sick of Byte, so I'm just going to kind of breeze over this one as I flip through... It is fun to flip through. I've forgotten how much fun. For some reason, I find it easier to flip through back to front when I'm just, like, scanning for something in the magazine. So I'm kind of going a little slower as I flip this way. And wow, in this quiet room, it really picks up the page turning, so I will try to be quiet about it. That may, may be the downfall of my plan to actually flip through these magazines in, like, meat space. It's a bit louder than I thought. When this one, yeah, they have a big feature on the six personal computers from Japan. So a BMC, a Canon, a Hitachi, uh, NEC, Fujitsu, and six Systems... F- wow, Systems Formula Corporation? It's about the first 150 pages of the magazine. Is, that article is all dedicated to that. There's the, the Atari Tutorial Part 9, which we'll look at. An article on the Color Computer, the, some, a Serial Port article. Jerry Pornell has an article about 
Supercal spelling programs, basic compilers, and homegrown accounting. There's a maze building program that's to generate mazes on a printer. TRC basic entry. A batch processing system overview. A character graphics editor for Apple. Uh, written in Pascal. There's an Apple speech synthesizer. And a real-time clock for CPM, which it says is the most popular microcomputer operating system. Temporarily. As I flip through, I just flagged a few articles to talk about. There's a real-time clock. This is a, a different article than the one that mentioned in the uh, table of contents just now. It says, technological advances have made real-time clocks simple and inexpensive. And that would have been very useful. Even the Atari ST later didn't have a real-time clock. And that I remember having to manually set the clock or date my... You know, all my programs would be dated like January 1st. And would make, like, make, you know, the make command not work very well if the timestamps were wrong. But I guess, you know, back then I, we didn't really have make. I don't remember. Maybe I got make on the ST at some point, but at any rate. We'll flip ahead to the Atari tutorial. Even more colors, it says. It says television artifacts and the new GTIA chip allow even more colors to be displayed on Atari computers. So it goes in about artifacts, and we've all seen that in, in the Graphics 8, or a single pixel, depending on if it's on an even or odd column will be a different color. And as an aside, that's how the Apple gets its colors, but it also has a unique ability to shift the pixels by a half a pixel. And so it gets different artifacting colors for a different... So they can get six colors rather than the four that we can get on the Atari. I remember all those programs that did the Moire patterns. And it's got a little graphic that kind of shows that if it's if the pixels go off-on in a pair, then it's one color. If it goes on-off in a pair, that's a different color. If it's on-on, then it's white. And if the if there are pixels that are adjacent to each other, but in different um, pairs, so if it goes off-on in one set, and then on-off in the next set of two pixels, it says it's color D, which is a fourth color. So the colors A through D are different for each television set, usually because the tint control settings vary. I remember those tint controls and fiddling around with all these analog TVs. Then it goes on a summary of the GTIA chip and said it's just uh, the three new modes, the graphics 9, 10, and 11, are just different interpretations of graphics mode 8 or Antic 15. And so basically what, what they do is they take four bits, and through those four bits they can either generate 16 shades uh, of a single color, 16 colors with the same brightness luminance level, or that the, there's one that has full control of the colors, but this, since there's only, what, nine color registers on the Atari, it doesn't have any a- extra ones, so there's like five colors. What, nine plus, that'd be seven colors that don't have, that are just black, I think. That basically goes into all that detail. And then it goes on. It has a nice summary. At the end, it says there's some disadvantages associated with the chip, which I wouldn't have thought, but it says that uh, you have to make custom graphics modes, custom display lists, but, I mean, if you're going to program, you'll probably just convert a graphics 8 screen anyway, so it's, I don't think that's a big deal. But and then it shows, you know, the ratio of the pixels being four pixels wide and one pixel tall. It makes, it says it makes curved lines very difficult to display correctly. And then it says, of course, it's not backward compatible, so if you code something in GTI mode, you can't run it on a CTIA machine. Jumping in all the way to page 274, there's a maze-building program. And I found this really interesting. It was... I had kind of wondered about maze programs, and I never kind of grasped the idea of like a recursive maze generation program. But it's a, it's a very good explanation. It's a, the first sentence even. It says a maze may look incredibly complex, yet it must satisfy just three simple conditions. The maze must have, must have only one starting point, one ending point. All points in the maze must be accessible from the starting point, and there can be only one path from start to finish. 
And then about generating the maze, because the top and left sides of each cell are the bottom and right sides of some other cell, we only consider the bottom and right sides for our purposes here. We will then consider each cell as a matrix position in matrix M. Since we're only concerned with two sides, only four different combinations of open, closed sets of cell sides are possible. So either all open, the right closed, and the bottom open, the right open, the bottom closed, or both closed. So he gives those values of 1, 2, 3, and 4, and says 0. If a cell has 0, it means it's, it's not been, the cell has not been computed by the program. So this program starts at the upper left of the, of a, you know, the grid, and it just starts cutting a maze through it, cutting a path through it, it says, and just changing directions randomly. And when it gets to a point where it curls back on itself and hits a, a cell that's already been set in some direction, goes back to the starting cell at the upper left and try does it again. And when it gets back again to curl in on itself and, and stop by hitting some other part of the maze, and it tries to go up to the upper left, but all those directions have been used, so then it goes one cell to the right and starts that process over again. This is about a 50-line, 60-line Pascal program. And this was designed to be printed out on a printer, so as it completes... One line, it prints out a line, you know, like a row of maze cells, and it goes to the next line. Start picking out spaces that haven't been turned into a maze yet and, and handles those in the same way. It's not clear to me that that actually would generate a solution where points were reachable, where every point was reachable from the starting point. So, hmm. I thought I understood it, but now I'm <laughs> not quite so sure. I guess the key must be as it goes back after the maze turns in on itself and stops, it goes back to the start, it connects the sides when it moves one cell over. I don't know if this is making any sense at all. It got some nice examples in the in the magazine. It's If it actually works, it's a <laughs> good algorithm. I have only one more section bookmarked here. Let's check it out. Okay, this was an ad. So this was something called the Dual 68000. It was some workstation that had to run a Unix. <laughs> it's kind of a misnamed. It only has one CPU, but I guess it's Dual Systems Control Corporation. I just thought this was interesting, because this is a 68000, so it's what the... ST and Amiga would use. It starts at $8,295 for an 8 megahertz 68,000. Looks like starting with 256k of RAM. So anyway, just in like three short years, the price will come down from 8,000, over 8,000 to a $1,000 machine with a 68,000 processor in it. Anyway, that's it for Byte this time. Byte is huge, and I think it's growing less and less interesting for a, from the Atari point of view. We'll have to see what it's like when the um, after the the Dayray Atari serialization comes to an end. Okay, let's look at Compute. This is the Journal for Progressive Computing, May 1982, issue 24, volume 4, number 5. It's got sort of the compute-style watercolor line drawing, kind of, I don't know what art style it is. And the, there's a couple of different illustrations. One is a guy in a green shirt, like, squeezing a keyboard, and it says, putting the squeeze on your VIC-20, getting the most out of 5,000 bytes. There's modifying Apple's floating point basic, and there's apples floating in water. A life insurance estimator, and there's a sort of stereotypical insurance agent talking on the phone. Interestingly, there's an article here about Atari artifacting as well, just like in Byte. And then screen input for the Commodore PET CBM. And it has some reviews of stuff. It says that the also the Atari GTIA chip. It's interesting to see how close some of the things are at, in time as they cover, because the in Byte we just talked about the GTIA, and this says GTIA as well. The table of contents, it lists... Again, I think I talked about this last article a year ago, if you remember that far back. It has the sort of the title of the article in a page, and then it has a column for either computer-specific or multiple computers. So there's a fair number of Atari-specific stuff. There's the Atari Microsoft Basic Review continued. The GTIA chip. There's a language lab. Uh, no commotion motion inside Atari. 
uh, get your getting your Atari disk drive up to speed, considering space and time on the Atari, and then extra colors through artifacting. On the facing page is an ad by Atari talking about APX, and it highlights Fernando Herrera's My First Alphabet, amongst other things, like Ronald Marcuse, uh, David Management System, Sheldon Lehman for his Instead at Greg Christensen for Caverns of Mars. This would be very motivational for me to go back in time and, and see this names in there and think, oh, I could do that. In fact, you know, I did, but I, of course I never submitted anything, but that was a big part of, I think, the appeals. This is like still software written by a single person and sent in and, and you know, APX being the original app store. There's editor's notes written by Robert C. Locke, the publisher slash editor, and talks about a bunch of stuff, but the the initial part is the that Apple is pushing for revisions of the tax law that will allow them to give an Apple II system with the appropriately revised tax deductions to every elementary and secondary school in the country. It's estimated at 80,000 schools, and that's a lot of Apple IIs. But of course, that's how Apple II really got its hooks in people by the education market. I know that happened to me. And there's a little blurb about the upcoming VIX-64, they say. So yeah, I think the VIX-64, I think the Commodore 64 is due in August, if I remember right. And by the way, since you can't hear me flipping pages, yeah, I'm back to reading on the Internet Archive. There's a series of articles called The Beginner's Page, talking about, this is the ASCII code by Richard Mansfield, the associate editor. Oh, here's an ad to expand your Atari 400 to 32K for only $119 by Mosaic. Mosaic was one of the big names in RAM expansions. There's an article on some speculations on the well-programmed game. It's kind of laying out a, a plan how you would start and develop a game from concept to sort of planning to the actual writing of the game. Remember flowcharts? This, this author is big into flowcharts. And the, one of the quotes that's pulled out says, Don't be afraid to make mistakes. If you're lucky, you'll make lots of them. Each one will burn a lesson into your memory. My brain must be a bit of charcoal by now. There's an article on a new technique for mixing basic and machine language, and it has a whole bunch of different machines, the Big 20 Atari, the PET. So it's basically a way of hacking the basic to turn a remark statement into the place where you store machine language. Atari's really didn't need this, because you could store machine languages in a, in a string. But for completeness, they did it anyway, and um, it's an interesting hack. You put five RAM statements at the beginning of the program, you do a few pokes, and then it turns it into one long line that's longer than normal. Uh, but then it says contiguous bytes, up to 249 bytes, it says. All in the pet, you could reserve up to 2,739 bytes, which the author said should be more than enough for any application. Review of Atari Microsoft Basic Part 3 by Jerry White. And Microsoft Basic never really caught on for the Atari, so we'll skip it. Here's the GTIA chip. Kind of going over the same stuff that we talked about in Byte. Nothing really new here. There's a program called uh, the Language Lab. It says it's an Atari learning program to help you build vocabulary in a foreign language. It says it's basically a computerized version of the old standby of language education, the flashcard set. The downfall, of course, I guess is you have to enter the words in before you run the program, so you'll know what all the words are. But I guess, well, that's part of the problem, I guess, is just being able to remember all the words. But I suppose you could type it in for a friend and give it to the friend. There's an article, The World Inside the Computer, by Fred D'Ignazio, who Kevin interviewed in his Antic Podcast series. It's kind of like a history of computers and a bit about how microprocessors work. And one of the fun quotes, it says, According to one expert, by 1990, circuit designers will be able to fabricate a computer chip with a level of detail equal to a street map of the entire United States. Which is a fun quote, but I guess I wonder what that would actually compare to. There's a picture of the um, circuit diagram of the Intel 4004, which is the first microprocessor. And even that is, like, super complicated. So These processors today, I have a 
She's got an AMD Ryzen for my desktop computer. It's like, I think what did it say? Six billion transistors? Something nuts. Oh, here's no commotion motion in the article for the said it was about Atari. And it turns out it's a a vertical player mover. Because, you know, yeah, horizontal positioning of players is easy and vertically you have to shift the memory around. There's an article about sending programs over the phone, like direct modem links, and about uh, transfer formats. I think this is even before X-Modem happened. It's an article on fourth, the language I always wanted to learn but never did. And it's still pretty super confusing. And here's the article about the Atari disk drive speed. And I've seen that was a problem that disks, disk drives would sort of get out of a line or out of speed. Uh, and Atari, for some reason, rotated at 288 RPM instead of the standard 300. So, the, so there's a potentiometer you can adjust, but this is a program to test the speed in both basic and machine language. And there's the article about the VIC-20 with the poor 5,000-byte limit article Considering Space and Time in the Atari by uh, C. Michael Levy and Grant Levy. And it's, an, again, another set of sort of speed-ups, optimizations you can put in your basic program to make it go faster. And we just talked about one of those in Analog. And the final Atari article is the artifacting. And so it talks about differences between you know, Graphics 7 and Graphics 8, where you don't get artifacting in Graphics 7. And I miscounted. It's inside Atari's after this as well. This is by Bill Wilkinson. And this is a long, long article. It talks about several things, one of them being a program to do they called soft keys, where if you hit a key, you can enter more than one character or you know, a string of stuff. And there's a little subsection, Inside Atari Basic Part 4. It says, uh, if you control seven pointers, you control basic. It's got a list of these zero-page addresses. Got variable name tables and the statement table pointers, string array pointers. And he has what he calls tidbit number one, tidbit number two, tidbit, tidbit number three, little bitty chunks. Talking about structure programming, uh, there's a bug in DOS 2.0s, and it shows you a couple pokes to make, but it says, don't try this with other DOSs. There's a neat little thing about clearing memory of the screen clear command. It says, doesn't actually go line by line and clear the text screen, it just stomps through memory. So by changing the pointer what where it thinks the memory is, you can clear certain bits of memory by using the clear screen command, which is a neat little hack. And finally, in the new products section, there's a little blurb about the Atari summer camps. And Kevin had a, a great, this was early on, in the first, <laughs> when the first hundred, there are 300 and something interviews. Somewhere in the first hundred, there was a sort of a special summer camp edition where he interviewed several people and put it all in one interview to be kind of like a story of the summer camps. And the back cover, they finally got a different picture. It's not quite the creepy William Shatner. It's a different William Shatner picture advertising the VIC-20. So it's not quite, I would not totally be turned off buying a VIC-20 by seeing this picture of William Shatner. Take a quick look at Computer and Video Games, May 1982 for 75 pence. And on the cover, there's some blue things that are totally not Smurfs. No, indeed. Our lawyer said these were close enough, but not close enough to be sued. Inside, the, it says the complete Sinclair. A gamer's look at the ZX81. When space pirates clash, computer-moderated gaming. And Pac-Man, spelled P-A-C-K-M-A-N. Monopoly, spelled M-I-N-O-P-O-L-Y. And Earthport 2. All right, so we'll just take a quick look, because I don't think there's much Atari stuff in here. Oh, sorry, it's Puckman, not Pac-Man. So it's unclear on the title page. Oh, no, on the title, on the cover, it says Pac-Man, and then the table of contents, it says Puckman. So somebody's copy-editing problem. In table of contents, there's one that highlights the Atari. It's called Double Cannon. It says, turn your Atari into a shooting gallery and test your marksmanship. I do like the way they set out their mail... Um, they call it mailbag, you know, their reader-response stuff. They have, a, like, a really bold font for each, like a summary of each little uh, letter that they got. And there's a fair amount of screenshots and 
nothing I'm really going to talk about, it, but I just thought I'd like the format. There's an ad for a company called Ada that says uh, expanded to 32K for Ataris. Uh, a 400 with 32K of RAM costs 345 pounds, and an 800 costs 575 pounds. That's a lot of pounds, considering the Vic was on the next page uh, 190 pounds, the Acorn Atom was 200 pounds. This is this before the BBC? I've been out of it for long enough, and my dates are kind of messy. In the game's news section, they talk about Caverns of Mars. It's £29.95, available from Atari distributors, it says. It, said it doesn't really call out that it's APX, so maybe it was distributed differently in the UK. Hmm. If anybody knows, let me know. There's a, a little mini-review of a game called Crazy Shootout, but it's spelled C-R-A-Z-Y, where the one back in analog was K-R-A-Z-Y, because it was from K-Byte. But it's described as a, a similar game, so it's interesting that... Says Crazy Shootout comes from newly formed Mapsoft subsidiary of uh, Maplin Electronics. We know Maplin was the uh, a distributor of Atari stuff, or one of them, in the UK. Interestingly, there's articles on chess and Reverse Eye, or Othello as I always called it, like strategies for not necessarily computer games. Arcade stuff, they got some tics, tips on playing Kicks, which is a super hard game. Here's the Puck Man game. Yeah, it's a Pac Man clone on a 40 column pet in 8K of memory. And it looks like, I think the pet didn't have a graphics mode, it says like a character mode, so you can see the maze in the basic statements. And here's Double Cannon, the Atari game. Is that it? It's only Well, that'd be good. If it were, like, obfuscated, it would be a good, like, 10-line basic program, because it's only, gosh, it's not very long at all. Maybe 80 lines of basic. They've got their practical programming sections, a lot of basic tips. And toward the end here, there's a ad for Callisto Computers Limited, that has a whole bunch of Atari software. And then the back cover is Maplin again the Atari distributor. We'll skip forward to Computer Gaming World. This is volume 2, number 3, for May and June 1982, $2.75 on the cover price. It's only 44 pages, still kind of small. And the front cover is a really cool kind of vector line drawing. Um, it's sort of a, a map in blue, like blue outline of some generic sort of country border. And there's a target in the middle and sort of pink vector, and then there's this receding rectangle of a sort of yellow vectors of squares as they recede in the distance they get smaller and smaller and there's a looks like a missile of some sort falling toward the target but no text on the cover and the table of contents they have a they talk about wizardry the proving grounds it says a review of Surtex popular fantasy game there's a strategy guide for Eastern Front there's an interview with Roberta Williams a new game from Avalon Hill Review there's some says scenes from the West Coast Computer Fair long distance gaming gaming via the source and CompuServe and a few other less interesting things. So Wizardry, I'm not going to talk much about this. I didn't really play it, but I know it was a seminal game for the Apple. The Eastern Front article by Bob Proctor talks about both strategy and tactics. So strategy being the big picture and tactics being how it actually works. And talks about like the zones of control that uh, Chris Crawford, when he wrote it, how they interact. Because it's, you know, it's, it's a grid map of squares, and so the diagonals aren't they don't have the same sort of control as the as the squares that are uh, directly adjacent. But I, yeah, I don't I wish maybe if Eastern Front could ever be modified for a touchscreen, it would be a perfect game for a touchscreen because you could scroll around because moving the joystick with Eastern Front just it's like takes a while, but if you could scroll around and just touch on units, that would be a, a perfect conversion. The interview with Roberta Williams is about a game called Time Zone. Uh, it says on six two-sided discs, Time Zone is easily the largest game program commercially available. Interestingly, it says the interview was held on April 2nd, 1982, and this is just the May-June issue, so it's a pretty fast turnaround. But it's, it looks like some sort of fantasy game. I don't know, it's hard to tell. 
There's a review of a game called Voyager 1, The Sabotage of a Robot Ship. A 3D maze game. So it's Avalon Hill. So you're in, well, like the last survivor of a attack force on a ship, and you've got to go through the ship and find your little quests and stuff. So it's a it's a 3D sort of into the screen. You're walking, and you can turn left and right. This is as automatic mapping, but various problems that the reviewer didn't really like, like uh, sort of the pure randomness of the robots that are attacking you. And then it says if you get killed and want to get resurrected, it'll put you back in some random part of the ship, but it, it allows your uh, all your map history to remain, which the author found a little yeah, interesting how it would, how it would do that. There's a column called Atari Arcade. Uh, it's talking about Asteroids and Missile Command, the cartridges available. It talks about um, Protector, and it said in their review, and was it the last issue of Computer Gaming World said it was flawed and some mysterious bugs, but it says that apparently that Mr. Potter switched companies in mid-program so when the, it was initially released, the program was unfinished. As his protector is now available from Synapse, and this version does a lot more and costs less, too. Said Mike Potter displays real virtuosity on the Atari, and I can't wait to see what's next from him. So I don't know if this is Protector 2, or if that's just a different version of Protector released by Synapse instead of whatever the other company was. There's some scenes from the West Coast Computer Fair that are literally scenes. They're just a bunch of pictures. It's two pages, and there are 17 pictures, and it's got some captions and one of them is our good Atari buddy, Chris Crawford. And that's it for Atari stuff. They talk about if you want to write for Computer Gaming World, you can submit them. It says almost all the, all the articles come from active readers of the magazines. We write, invite your submissions of articles, art, humor, etc. Pays two cents per word and $30 per page for most artwork. This is artwork for, of less than a page will be prorated. Article submissions should be typed. At least double-spaced and preferably triple-spaced with one inch of margin. <laughs> Please try to avoid all uppercase printing. That was before they had the term shouting, I guess. This submission has become property of Golden Empire Publications, Inc. Rights revert to the author upon publication or rejection. Specifically, our purchase covers first world rights. First world being undefined. And that's pretty much it. And there's a, there's a fun little ad for a grid paper, a screen layout worksheet. So you get it's four bucks per pad of paper. It has you know just the grids of whatever resolution you want. I remember those days. Here we come up on Creative Computing, and again, I have a physical copy. Although this has worked it much better in my or imagination than it seems to be doing on recording. So hopefully the page turning isn't annoying. I may have to just read them here and then mark them up on a PDF or something. So on the cover is um, May 1982, Volume 8, Number 5, $2.95. It says, The number one magazine of computer applications and software. And listen some applications. Structured, design, and basic calculating the need for college financial aid, AWACS, a simulation game, some in-depth evaluations of Omniterm, Visiterm, four arcade games, and the Axelon Ramdisk for Atari. It's a special section on data communications. It's got a kind of a greenish-blue background and a few kind of skewed clips out of newspapers kind of over, superimposed over like a globe of some planet. It's like quietly turn pages. The only Atari-specific thing is Outpost Atari. Well, and the Axelon RAM disk, I guess. It talks about those terminal emulators, uh, Omniterm and Visiterm. There's seven adventure games, and something titled From Shovels to Lasers has four games for four computers. I wonder if that's the arcade game reviews they were talking about. I, I, I have looked at the magazine before. I'm just, I have like little bookmarks and dog ears and stuff. Well, not dog ears, because I'm not going to fold my magazines, but I don't. <laughs> it's been a while, so I don't recall what, it, what it's all about. Well, well, we'll get to it. So the Axelon RAM disk. 128K memory system for the Atari. Review by David Small. 
So I never had one of these. 128K, holy cow, that's too many K. I don't know what I'd do with all those K. So this one is for the Atari 800, not the 400, because you have to take out uh, one of the, it says the middle 16K board, and put in the RAM disk. I kind of th- I thought maybe that's maybe where the, the RAM buffer swapped out, you know, the sort of the memory window. You know, the, that would be the K from, the 16K from 4,000 to 8,000 8, hex. It talks about the modifications to DOS that turn the RAM disk into disk number four. And so you can copy it, copy stuff to and from just like a normal disk drive. And yes, yeah, so probably why it is tucked into that middle memory spot it is. So it, it does say later that it's the, from 4,000 to 7 FFF to be of any eight individual banks of 16K, one at a time. It says the solidly built, well-documented product. Doesn't have any speed comparisons, but it's got to be a huge upgrade over the serial port. There's a article with multiple game reviews of adventure programs that talk about Ultima. This is Ultima 1. It says Ultima far surpasses the earlier effort of a Calabath. I never played Ultima 1 or Ultima 2. I started with Ultima 3. I bet I could look at it. After playing Ultima 3, it was tough to go back to Ultima 1 at that time. Also talk about Wizardry, uh, Dragon's Eye, but that's not for the Atari. Uh, actually, I guess all these right now are for the Apple, but I know Ultima... Does that, doesn't Ultima get released for the Atari? Pretty sure. Ultima 1. There's one that specifically lists the Atari. It's called Fantasyland 2041 AD. So it says it's makings of an epic adventure a la Ultima, but lacks variety. It says the graphics are simple, and you don't assume the role of any character. You just are the sort of overseer of the party of people. No screenshots, hard to... I'm assuming it's a tile game, but it's hard to know what it is. Oh, here's the... From Shovels to Lasers, four games for four computers. Talking about Apple Panic, which, interestingly, was released on the Atari. Starfighter for the TRS-80 models 1 and 2. Galactic Chase for the Atari, which is like a Galaxian clone. And uh, Color Space Invaders for the TRS-80 color computer. Includes, or requires, 16K extended color basic. They have an article by Betsy Staples about the 1982 Winter Consumer Electronics Show. It does note here that it will be called the Commodore 64 when it is released instead of the VIC-64. It says it features a CPM option, which I'm not sure about that. 64K memory, 66-key full-stroke keyboard, upper and lower case. Audio capabilities includes sound generation, which we know has a very good sound chip. I'm sure the oddball computer mentioned here is called the Zgrass 32 by Astrovision. So it's a Z80-based machine, has 32K of ROM. It says it has a Zgrass language, whatever that is, combined with a Votrax chip and Astro Arcade chips. Allows users to create 256 color animations. Three voice music, expandable to run CPM. Retail price of 600 should be available in April. I have never heard of that. It's really interesting. The keyboard looks like it's, sort of looks like Apple-style keys, but wider. It's like there's too many keys on the row. Maybe it's got a built-in numeric keypad. The picture's really small. And it looks like it has some sort of additional keypad further up, like toward the back of the machine. Interesting. Yeah, a whole bunch of... They, they show a lot of the computers from Japanese companies as the Byte magazine had. But none of those made an inroads... None of made inroads at all to the U.S. Was Nintendo the first system? Well, that wasn't a computer, but that must have been the first. Wasn't it? Oh, I'm sure somebody will correct me. There's an article. Adding machine language routines to basic. I just... I noted this... Because nowhere does it list what computer this is for. I mean, I, I gather it's for a Z80 machine. Because it talks about addresses in, like, 4830H. Oh, yeah, and there, of course, the next page. It's been so long since I've read this. Yeah, it's it's a um, Z80 assembly language listing. So it is indeed a Z80 processor. But no 
particular system, so I don't know what machine that's for. Kind of a, you know, good thing to do when you're writing a program is to, or writing an article is to tell it which computer it's for. There's an article called Structured Design with Basic? Question mark, Which should be a really short article. It should just say no, period. But the author goes into quite a bit of detail about ways to work with yeah, structured basic. Structured programming in basic. There's this game, AWOX. Uh, it's a type-in basic game. Looks like for the Apple II. Doesn't, again, it doesn't really say it in the front. I don't want really to say that because it has V-tabs and calls and stuff like that in the basic source code. But still, yeah, you think they would say somewhere. I come to the Outpost Atari by David Small. It says, this is part two of the description of Atari discs begun in the April Outpost Atari. The point of the whole first page is basically the disc I.O. was very slow. So it talks about buffers and how you can buffer stuff. On the facing page is an ad for uh, Atari software. It says, uh, published by Creative Computing Software. It's like air traffic controller, pool, darts, billiards, snooker, cribbage, trucker. In the opposite story, David Small goes on and talks about the device control block and which bits are used for the when you want a, a direct access to the disk. And, you know, unlike the Apple that had direct control of the, of the disk drive, we had to go through the serial port back and forth and just, like, ask for a sector and get data back. Boy, as an aside, listening to Mark Pilgrim and Peter Ferry at uh, Kansas Fest talking about all the Apple protection schemes. It's just amazing the stuff they could do when you have, you know, literally, like, when you are the disk controller, and of course, at the expense of really, really complicated programming. David Small does talk a little bit about the um, copy protection and how, it's, how it works. And it's just because the, uh, mostly, he said these, or he's, well, these early ones, like, he doesn't really say they're early, but they have uh, just bad sectors on them that the uh, the Atari disk can't, the disk drive can't create. So if you just try to copy it onto a regular disk, the uh, the format command says handled by the 6507 microprocessor will create good disk, good sectors, and when the program copy expects to find a bad sector, it finds a good one, and then the program knows that it's not residing on the original disk and can quit. So his next paragraph, he says, the only way to defeat this scheme is to disassemble code and remove the sector check. And even if the author is slightly clever, it will take so long to find the sector checking routine that the program will be outdated by the time it is finally made copyable. Wrong. I think there was stuff released before, released by the pirates before it was even out. So I I think that outdating is not the correct way to look at it. But he makes a good point here. Consider what a person's time is worth compared to the cost of the program. If it takes two weeks to break a copy protection scheme, isn't it better just to buy the program? And I've fallen into that trap many times myself. It's fun to program stuff, and then you end up taking such a long time that if you were to pay yourself an hourly rate and then look at how much time you've spent, yeah, you find that you weren't very efficient. And that's about it for the creative computing stuff. The back cover is an ad for elephant floppy disks. It's a sort of iconic ad, yellow background and red text, remember, and big, big point, big font. And in my test, my elephant disks from that back then didn't fare very well, so. I'll take a quick look at Micro, the 6502 slash 6809 journal, May 1982, number 48. Two bucks fifty in US and Canada, two bucks ninety-five internationally, and one pound eighty in the UK. The cover is its usual, looking out of the computer screen. This time it's at a Racer, it almost looks like a Studebaker Avanti. I don't know what that car is, but it's got like a racing number on the side, and uh, it's a convertible, and there's a person with a red and, red and black checkered flag in the car, waving the flag, so I'm not sure what, quite what that means. I don't think many races have uh, starters that are in moving cars, but it's also got like a, a digitized 
version of a steering wheel and the instrument panel. So you would think this would be about some car games, but I don't think so. It says there's a pet feature in this issue. And it says growing knowledge trees, 6502 and 6809 memory moves, and Apple printer utilities. It's on the cover. Interestingly, uh, Internet Archive says this is 117 pages, which seems kind of weird. How could you get an even number? Or you should have an even number of pages, right? How can you get an odd number of pages? Maybe there's a reader service card stuck in the middle or something. You know, each page has a front and a back, right? So, uh, the title, or sorry, the the contents page. There is a there's a column from here to Atari by James Caporell, and that's the only Atari specific item noted. The reader comment stuff is very hard to read. Yeah, I really like the the computer and video games way where they have like a, a really bold summary, so you can clearly see where each um, reader response was. And here's just a bunch of like squished text. It's really hard to figure out what to do, and even if you'd want to read it. There's a basic to machine language interface article for the AIM, and I wonder how much longer they're going to cover, yeah, like the AIM and the Ohio Scientific and stuff like that. There's a really cool article about comparing the 6502 and 6809 for memory moves, and 6809 obviously is a more advanced processor, so it's got faster ways to move memory, but they have a sort of side-by-side comparisons of the the raw assembly language for each of these categories of moves. So, like, there's a there's a category for a fewer than you know, uh, 256 bytes of RAM. There's one for arbitrary sized copy, and the 6809 has some has some nice features. It's much faster in terms of clock cycles as well. But it looks like on the 6809 they actually have 16-bit registers. If I'm understanding this correctly, I know nothing about 6809 assembly language, but the comments anyway seem to suggest that it has it says initialized 16-bit pointers, and it's just a single instruction. So I'm assuming that's what it can do. But yeah, so the 6809 clearly outclasses the 6502 in terms of, you know, efficiency of instructions. But we all love our 6502s, don't we? So here's the From Here to Atari by James Caporell, and then it says, Editors note this will be the last From Here to Atari that will appear in Micro. We thank Jim Caporell for his efforts and wish him success with his new Atari magazine, Antic. And we say to the Atari community, send us your work. We are very interested in publishing Atari material. So in this article, he talks about using the joystick ports for both input and output. Got some reviews of both hardware and software stuff. Like a, there's a high-res board for the Ohio Scientific Computer. And there's some other software. There's a, a CMOS static memory board for the OSI. The, a disk drive for the color computer. That's 680 bucks. I thought, boy, I thought uh, the 810 was expensive. There's kind of an oddball program for the Apple that sort of a preprocessor for basic. You type it in some structured format, and then it converts it to something AppleSoft can use. A lot of Apple stuff for supposedly specific magazine. Oh, here we go. The pet feature starting on page 61, so I think this is where the... Yeah, I got a bunch of stuff for the pet. There's an ad in here for Dr. Dobbs Journal, which I always found, like, super... The the stage I was at, it was far more advanced than I was. And when I started being aware of it, it was, like, very focused on, like, C++ and stuff, which I was not doing at the time. So it was always, like, one step ahead of me. Here's a full-page ad. It says, Write for Micro. Actively seeking articles to present to our unique audience... So get your sub- submissions in there. Yeah, there's an Atari uh, specific or like feature coming out in November, so you have to get them in before August 6, uh, 1982. So hop to it. One of the things I like about micros is they have these indexes in the back. So they have an article about the, their general 6502 stuff, and they list all the issues and where they are, issues and page numbers. And the, 
they have uh, the cult broken out by machine as well, and there's only four Atari articles listed. And then they, at the end of the day, they tell again the editorial schedule for Micro. So July next month will be... Wait, no, June. June is next month. Where is it? I don't know. It doesn't say what the feature is going to be for June, but July is the Apple. Uh, August is programming techniques. September is the 68,000. Well, that'll be fun. October is education. November is Atari slash games. And December is the pet again. Didn't realize the pet was that popular. And you have 117 pages. I don't know where they got that odd page. Instead of a normal game review this time, I'm going to talk a little bit about the game that I wrote for Kansas Fest. This is my first real machine language game, and it's not still not quite complete, but it's certainly by far the farthest I've ever gotten writing a, a machine language game. Yeah, so for Kansas Fest, I was trying to do something that would be, you know, impressive. But it would have meant, it, was, it meant a lot of work. And I had to do a lot of preparation, because I really didn't know that much about the Apple II. I mean, I knew a little bit about the graphics and um, just kind of the weirdness that it is, but I'd never actually tried to work with it before. And knowing that it was going to be a high-res game, I had to come up with some concepts, so I knew... I mean, there's just not enough cycles available uh, with the 6502 to do whatever you want, so you have to come up with a concept that's you know, workable on a, a system that's as slow. So starting about the beginning of this year, I started prototyping some stuff in Python, just some game ideas to see if something could you know, could work. I ended up thinking about Amadar. Amadar was a game that was covered both on the old original No Quarter and um, more recently Tenpence Arcade. Whenever Tenpence Arcade has a game that's, you know, mid-80s or earlier, I always put it on one of the arcade machines and, you know, we kind of, uh, as a family, we have a little competition to see who can who can do, you know, a good score. So I put Amadar on there and I, I don't know, I like the gameplay right away. I don't really like the graphics of the arcade game, but the gameplay is great. So the idea is you fill in these little squares. It's a maze game, you know, kind of like Pac-Man. So you, you fill in these squares, and when you fill the whole screen, you then go on to the next level. So, But the the difference is, is that the level is laid out in a bunch of sort of vertical columns. So there, what is there, seven, six or seven um, vertical lines that go from the top of the screen to the bottom of the screen. And connecting those vertical lines are periodically are horizontal lines, just at random places in each one of the the uh, columns. So you can cross from one column to another column using these horizontal connectors. You, as the player, can go anywhere you want over this thing, and once you've, you know, you fill in all the sides of the square, you get it colors in and you get that square. The enemies follow a predictable pattern. It's called Amadar movement. So when they're going up or down, if they cross a horizontal uh, connector, they have to take it. So it's entirely deterministic, at least that part. I'm, I'm not clear what happens at the top and the bottom when they you know, reach the bottom and they go to another place, because they don't always take the next ones. They sometimes... Yeah, so I don't know exactly how that works, and I had to kind of fake that in, in my version. Yeah, so the logic is entirely deterministic. It's a simple maze game. There's nothing, you know, there's no animation going on in the screen apart from the sprites moving around. So I thought it would be a good candidate. And using Python in a library called Curses, which is a sort of a text positioning library, you can put text at arbitrary positions on a, a like terminal window. I started prototyping the game to see if I could get the sort of the logic figured out. Because in four days, there's no way you could possibly do a high-res game from scratch. You, there's, you have to do some, some work ahead of time. And so what I did was I did the logic ahead and used the time at Kansas Fest to do all the assembly language coding. So I guess more correctly, it was a port, of a, or a port and enhancement of a previously written Python game. But, you know, settling on a design and, you know, figuring out the logic 
is one thing when you do it on a text screen, but then to have to transfer it to a high-res screen, there's a lot of things I had to figure out, like how to, put, how to draw sprites on the high-res, how to draw all the lines for the background maze, uh, how to do the fill, how to do text. I was going to do sound, but I didn't get a chance to do sound, so I, the sound on the Apple II is basically basically just hitting a soft switch, as they call it, and it makes a click on the speaker, and so you've got to time the clicks to make a, a tone or a buzz or whatever. So the first problem was the, the sprites, and I was searching around for like a sprite routine on Google, and I ran across Quinn Dunkey's sprite compiler. As it turned out, this is the project she was working on to present at this Kansas Fest, but hadn't announced it at that point, so I kind of discovered it before she was sort of expecting anybody to find it. So I talked to her about it, and I told her that I'd like to use it, and eventually try to get it to work for the Atari as well. So what a sprite compiler is, is it takes a bit image, you know, of course, because the Apple doesn't have any any like player missile graphics, it's all hand-drawn. So what a sprite compiler does is it takes the image and shifts it a pixel at a time, so it covers like a span of bytes, and so instead of instead of having to do a shift as you're drawing it on the screen, you just find out which shifted image corresponds to the position on the screen that you want, and then blast those bytes to the screen. So you're trading space for time. In her presentation at Kansas Fest, Quinn concluded that it was really not practical on an Apple II because there was not enough memory space on the Apple II to do it. In my case, it worked because it was a small enough set of objects. There was really only two different graphics. There was the player object and there was the Amadar object. So as I, I was able to get the sprite compiler to work. I kind of hacked with it a little bit, and her, her initial compiler was designed for color sprites, which on the Apple means they're on two pixel boundaries. I wanted to do black and white sprites, so I, I changed it so it could work on one pixel boundary. And I had a little test programs, and that was fast enough. Certainly fast enough, faster than drawing the sprites individually and shifting them individually. So I got me the sprites. The, there's a, for the fonts, to draw on the high-res screen, there's no character set available. It's weird. The Apple II has a character ROM, but it's not addressable by the 6502. So it means you can't change the character set, and you can't use those bits either. So you have to come up with your own method of um, drawing fonts. And the nice thing about it is that they're just on byte boundaries, so you don't have to worry about any of the shifting stuff. There's a great tutorial on, on Apple II high-res font generation that I'll include in the in the show notes. Michael Porohesky took a long time, obviously, to write this thing up. It's just a great tutorial. It goes from the basics to the, a, a really fast font renderer. So I, I got that to work. And then I thought about how to do the maze, and I, th- I thought, well, maybe I can do the maze as, like, font, as, you know, text characters blitted to the high-res screen. So I came up with a set of fonts that worked that. And then I, when I tried it, it was just not, it wasn't quite fast enough because I had to do a lot of changes. You know, a lot of changes on each on the screen, or enough anyway that it was slowing it down. So using Quinn's sprite compiler as kind of a starting point, I made a little uh, code generator program written in Python that outputs 6502 assembly that has a, a fast font blitting routine. But what it does is it, it transposes the font array. So instead of in memory going from the from bytes like 0 through 7, having the first, like all the graphics for the character, it splits it up into eight groups of bytes. Each group of byte, each group of bytes has the same number of bytes in it as there are characters. So if you've got a 128 character font, the first group has 128 characters, all of which are in this first group are the very top line of each character. And there's a second group that has the second line of all the characters, and then third group, and so on. So what you can do is you can write a, an unrolled loop that uses a single index into the character 
so the character number, you know, 12 or whatever, if you, if you stick 12 in the, in the Y register, you don't have to change that Y register as you draw each line of the um, character. So Y becomes index into the character array, and then use X as an index into the column on the screen. And then for each, you know, you have 24 rows of characters, and so for each of those 24 rows, you have a hard-coded section that has the address of the zeroth byte of that row indexed on the X register. Well, the X register, X register doesn't change, the Y register doesn't change, so you just change, so you loop, or you, you walk through eight sets of this where you load from the font array and save to the screen, but you do all the math beforehand, so you're having these hard-coded values. So it's super fast. I haven't done the timing, but it seems more than twice as fast as the other routine. And all this code generation stuff I have in a GitHub project that I will put a link on the show notes to. It's called ASMGen, A-S-M-G-E-N. And right now it's Apple-specific, but I have plans to make it uh, work on the Atari. So we get an Atari sprite compiler and Atari bit blittable font. Is that a word? Blittable? The high-res graphics font. Or even you know, we'll work on you know, Antic 14 or whatever. I'll make it work for different uh, character sets. The problem with the Atari, of course, is that memory can be... the screen memory can be anywhere and in any order, so it's not quite as straightforward. You know, the Apple only has two high-res screens in there in fixed locations. So anyway, with this, I had... now I had a sprite routine, I had a font generation routine, I had all the logic sort of worked out, and then when Kansas Fest came around, I did all the assembly language programs. So I started from, you know, nothing. I started from the I was looking at the Python source and trying to say, okay, well, how would this translate into 6502? I work on Linux, and so I had to... There's no real Linux Apple II emulator that has a debugger that I could find, so I have to run Wine on top of Linux. And in Wine, I would run AppleWin, so it's, you know, it's turtles all the way down. And even the AppleWin debugger, I was not really pleased with. Altera has a great debugger, and I'm kind of used to... like I debug my hard problems in Altera, and I got my most of the stuff I do in Atari 800. So I'm used to both of those systems. And it was just very, very different. It was it seemed powerful in some senses, but in others I was just struggling. Especially when you hit a break statement, it, I could not figure out where the break happened. There was no there's no easy way to go back to the previous instruction. So it was a lot of pulling my hair out and late nights and not socializing much, which is not all that atypical. So I looked at some other assembly language games. You know, in the past, like I looked over the source to like Livewire from Antic or from Analog, and you know all those all the great assembly language games that were published in Analog. I would try, try to pour over those, and I never really understood them, and I didn't have a great idea of what to do, about how to do a game. And then I I read somewhere, and I wish I could remember the attribution, but a game is essentially drawing a screen, getting input, and drawing another screen. That's so just all you're doing is simply drawing the screen. I guess the, the problem is, is just optimizing it so it runs fast enough on these old machines. I first decided, though, that I wasn't going to try to optimize at the beginning. I make that mistake a lot. Premature optimization. And I'll point to my source code on uh, GitHub in the show notes if you want to look at it. But what I wanted to do is to have like a, a main game loop that just jumped to, to subroutines and then return. So, but the main game loop would just be a, a single like line of JSR statements. And each JSR would do you know, some function, one function maybe. And so yeah, so basically the main program is at the start it just loads a title screen and then it's a bunch of stuff. And so that's pretty much what it does at the start. It just goes through, it loads a little title screen and then init some stuff and then goes right to the game loop. And what the game loop does is it, it jumps to a subroutine to read the character from the keyboard for the input. Then it processes the enemies and moves the enemies 
to their new position. Then it moves the player, and by moving the enemies first, I can check collisions with the enemies by the new position of the of the player. After those get drawn, I check if any boxes have been filled, and if so, I mark those in a list that will be filled later. And then it go, there's a subroutine to handle that. So as each these the boxes fill as the game still progresses, so it doesn't like shut the game down to fill the box. So the box fills one line on every um, game loop. And as I was prototyping stuff and getting to learn the Apple II graphics setup, I decided I'd use uh, page flipping so you wouldn't see any like tearing. And I, I in my tests it was pretty easy to where you know you get a, a tear as a sprite from like the last frame and the screen switches somewhere in the middle because there's no vertical blank. And so you get, like, yeah, poor viewing. So the nice thing about page flipping is you reduce the chance of tearing. It's, it's, it's still possible, because when you set the soft switch to flip pages, the Apple, like, the very next scan line it draws will be from the other page. But what that means, what that meant since I have two pages is I had, I had to track the positions of the sprites in two places. So when I would erase them the next time, I erase it in the right spot. So that means I had to have two lists, one for each page. And then because... These aren't sprites, you know, they're soft sprites, so they're drawn on the pixels. I had to figure out what to erase. And I tried, like, saving the background, so I made some... My um, code generator, I had some code to, to, like, save what was behind it into an array and then put that back, but that it just turned out that was too slow. And then I realized that since I know the maze, I know what's there in each block, you know, because it's, a, it's a, you know, a font character, and on the Apple it's seven wide and eight tall. On the Atari, it'd be 8 by 8 And I know which um, character cells that the sprite occupies. So instead of trying to save the damage, I can just copy those again. And so what that meant is I had to have the, the state of the maze saved somewhere. So I used the, the text screen as the source of the maze. And so that the text screen contained the, the maze, you know, the, the vertical lines, the horizontal lines, the, the intersections, all in terms of the characters that re- re- represent those in the um, character set. And then so when the sprites... When you erase a sprite, instead of like remembering where it is, you just remember what cells it are and just copy the cells from the text page over. And that turned out, with my fast font routine, it turned out to be plenty fast enough. It just meant I had to keep track of two separate lists. I called them damage lists for each screen. So there's a damage list for page one and a damage list for page two. And I just had to remember what page I was on as I was flipping back and forth. I think the hardest bit of code was the logic of the enemies. Even though it's a deterministic thing, the way I chose to design it, I don't know, probably was not the I don't know, it's it an artifact of starting from the curses point where I'm just tracking, you know, XY locations of the text cells, not the actual, like, position on the screen and on the high-res screen. So I chose to work with the text cells, and incidentally, that's how the collisions work. The collisions, since we don't have player missile collisions on Apple, I'm doing the sort of Pac-Man style. If you've read the Pac-Man dossier, which I'll put a link to in the show notes, just a uh, yeah, great dissection of how Pac-Man works. So how Pac-Man works is that the ghosts and Pac-Man only collide if they occupy the same, if their centers occupy the same text cell. And so that's how I chose to do this too. So I purposely knowing that there would be the Pac-Man bug where you could, like in Pac-Man, you can, the ghost and Pac-Man can go through each other if the conditions are right. Like if, if it, it changes, if the ghost, if a ghost changes a cell at the same time, Pac-Man leaves that cell and goes to the cell that the ghost was previously occupying. So I don't know, I kind of left that as a, in as a little Easter egg. And it was easier, too, so there was that. So what was I talking about? Oh, yeah, the um, the logic for the enemies, it, it, I was able to 
sort of use the, the screen tile to tell which directions were available, like left, right, and down, or only right and left, or only up and down. And so if a ghost, if a ghost, if an avatar is just on an up and down thing, it's just got to keep going the same direction. If it's going up and down, and then it comes to a cross, either a left or a right, and the way Amadar is designed is you can't have a horizontal line that goes entirely through, so it can't cross into two columns. So at, at most, when you're going vertically, you'll either go left or you'll go right. You'll never have to choose between both of them. So if you hit a horizontal uh, connector, then you've got to take that. The problem is, is there's this, there's the high-res position on the screen is not the same as the text position. So there's, you know, you have these, I call them, I ended up calling them sub, sub-pixel, but that's not really what it is, like, more like sub-character. So that it's a posi- pixel position within that within that text cell. So that means there's seven horizontal pixel positions and eight vertical pixel positions within each cell. So what I ended up doing is I took, kept track of the the text cell that the sprite was in and its sub pixel position. So at at each frame, you, the you wouldn't move a whole text cell at once. You just move a pixel or two in whatever the current direction was. And then when you reached a decision point, which was the middle it would then use the shape of that tile to figure out what direction it had to go, which sounds easier than it turned out to be. I, I, there's still a bug in it, actually, that, where if I restart the game, it crashes. I don't know what's happening. You can play through it once without any problem, but then the second time you play through it, the Amadars lose their sense of position, and they just go off the screen, and then there's a overflow error somewhere, and the game hits a break or something and crashes. But yeah, it was... It's hard enough trying to figure that out, and I still I, I don't really like the logic of how it worked, and I don't know how to do it over again. I'd probably go back and see how Pac-Man, if Pac-Man does it by pixel position and then computes the text cell, or what. But yeah, I was having problems when the... So I'd, sometimes the, I had to turn the movement up. I had to move like two or three pixels at a time, because it was too, if just one pixel at a time, the game moved too slowly. So by moving two or three pixels, sometimes you could jump right over the midpoint, and you'd ignore it. So I had to check before and after the move and see if I had crossed the midpoint. And if so, then I had to go back and then change and go whatever direction it was required to go. And there was a bunch of stuff I had to figure out and debug at Kansas Fest. Because that, that was probably the, yeah, the hardest thing. But the the thing that caused me to, to think that I might not get it done in time was this logic. And it wasn't really until the last few hours that I got it reliably working enough where I could thought I could demo it. And I tried to make it like a you know, my my goal was like a 1980-81 style game. My memories of the Apple II are games like Sabotage and Pegasus II, uh, Cannonball Blitz, early, early games that didn't have a lot of huge graphics going on, but they had, uh, you know, good playability. And I wanted to make it kind of a, you know, a real game-like experience. So I had, this, I had the scores up there, and I was going to try to make it multiplayer because my little um, prototype had multiplayer capability. And the code's all in multiplayer, so the code's all there. I just didn't actually get uh, get it going because one of the problems with the Apple is you can only read one uh, key press at a time, and so another key press will cancel out the last key press. So if there are two player people trying to use the keyboard at the same time, yeah, you could lock out the other player by just keeping by sort of pressing after immediately after they pressed a key. So there are all sorts of interesting things. And when I I'm gonna port this to the Atari, and when I do, I may do a straight port just to Graphics Eight and um, kind of set up a graphics 8 screen to look just like the, the Apple screen using a display list. And, you know, see... Because that's how a lot of games uh, were converted over. And In fact, on episode 6, uh, I looked at Sabotage, and the Atari Age user, Seamus, who did the the port, 
that's exactly what he did. He just set up a display list that mimicked the Apple II high-res screen and, and converted it that way. I don't think the code certainly is, it's, I don't know, yeah, like I said, it's my first game. I pretty much didn't know what I was doing, so I was just trying to make it as easily understandable and not worry about the speed of the game logic. So I figured the, the speed was going to be improved more by the sprites and font um, of the compiled code. So I was hoping to gain my speed there and then just use logic that was easier to follow. I'm not sure how easy it is to follow, but, you know, there's, I don't know, it works a little bit. And so one of the things I was happy about is I used a, a state machine to figure out what to do based on the state of the player. So the player could be alive, it could be dying, like just been hit by an enemy, it could be dead and regenerating, it could be a game over state, in which case then you, you count down for a little bit, let the avatars move around before you've switched to the next. So yeah, by using a finite state machine on the on the player itself, I could have the enemies still move around while the player was in whatever state the player was in. And that should be able to be modified to be uh, become an attract mode as well, either with some like hand-coded um, player or maybe just you know random player movements. But all in all, I was I was pretty happy with how it turned out, and you know clearly I was happy that it won the Hackfest. The source code is all up on GitHub. Yeah, I'll have a link there, and the source for my assembly code generator is also there, and I'll link to both of those. If you were going to write your own assembly language game, I don't know that I'd start with mine because I don't know that it's you know like coded up in any, any optimized way. You know, and in fact, it's almost unoptimized. But the code generation code, I think, is is pretty good. You know, the font generator and the sprite compiler. Quinn Dunkey did all the hard lifting there on the um, sprite compiler. I just modified it a little bit to get that to work on, um, you know, high-res black and white sprites. And then eventually yeah, I'll code it up for Atari sprites as well. But yeah, she did all the hard work there. I think without her work on that, I don't know that I would have had to optimize other places. And I don't know that a game would have been playable, given that my game logic and stuff is not very optimized. So I would, definitely would have had to change my attack. So I, again, yeah, I thank Quinn for sharing that and letting me use it. She's worked on a bunch of games. She's a works for a AAA game company, which I still don't know exactly what that means. I guess it means like the like formal commercial games with big teams and stuff. And one piece of advice she said at Kansas Fest, and whenever she says something, I always listen because it's always great. She said there was, don't keep track of things on the screen and don't try to use, don't try to detect collisions and stuff on the screen itself. Use your game logic and figure out where the collisions are there and then just put the results on the screen. That's one thing I thought about. I was trying to like, you know, as I was writing bytes to the screen to see if something was already there. But you know, it being a sort of a text-based game, or coming from a text-based game, I, you know, that decided to use the the character cells. Anyway, I'd be happy to answer any questions about the code if you take a look at it and you know, critique it or whatever. Um, yeah, like I said, for a first attempt, I don't think it's I don't think it's bad. I learned some stuff. I think I would do things differently. Although the one thing I would do similarly is definitely I would prototype it first in a high-level language, you know, something that the authors back then did not have the ability to do. But I think the biggest thing I would do differently is try to figure out if that sub-pixel thing could have been done better, how to just keep track of the high-res pixel, and then from there, you know, so the, sort of the high-res position being the, the source, and the um, character cell being computed from that rather than the other way around. Anyway, there you go. I expect an Atari 8-bit version at some point in the future, and I'll let you know when that happens. As a as we close out here with uh, some music by Tomasz Liebich called F*** Vocabulary. I just want to say that it's nice to be back. It's been fun. I think this 
new post-production scheme is going to work. Post-production scheme being, I'm pretty much not going to do post-production, so the audio may be a little more raw. Uh, certainly there's going to be more, like, little minor sounds, like a, you know, clicks or whatever that I used to just pour over and take out every single one. So that's the price you're going to have to pay for more episodes of Player Missile, is be okay with that. Because if you're not okay, then it's not going to get done. I offer this new production method with a money-back guarantee. I'll refund your zero dollars if you're unhappy with this download. I hope you did enjoy this. It was a bit of a self-serving episode because I was talking a bunch of a bunch of stuff that I w- was doing. Next episode, I think I'll move and cover um, Galahad and the Holy Grail, which I was thinking about doing for this one. We'll be back with magazine coverage. I may start eliminating a few magazines or just giving them a more a cursory summary. But the first casualty is likely to be bite if I do decide to eliminate anything. Well, thanks for sticking with me during this hiatus, and hopefully the hiatus is over forever now. If you want to leave me feedback about this or any other show, you can catch me on Twitter, where I'm at Atari8BitGames, or my email is feedback at playermissile.com. And I will see you next episode.